Good morning from Washington, one of the last areas in the nation to begin relaxing COVID-19 distancing protocols, which will begin tomorrow as some restaurants and hair salons begin reopening in a limited fashion. My name is Paul Kincaid. I'm Director of Congressional Outreach here at FMC, and I'd like to thank you all on behalf of more than 600 former members of Congress and our staff for joining us here on our virtual roundtable program. We're happy to be on Zoom again today, meaning you'll be able to see our esteemed panel while also providing more interactivity between them and you, our loyal audience. This morning, if you'd like to ask a question, please move your mouse to the bottom of your Zoom screen where you'll find the Q&A button. Just click it and fill in your name and question. We'll do the rest. You can do this at any time during the discussion. If we recognize you, you'll be live on audio only, so don't worry about your video camera, and you'll be able to ask your question. Our panel will do their best to answer it. In the past 10 weeks, more than 40 million Americans have filed for unemployment, representing nearly 20% of our full-time workforce. Though the workforce has seen seismic change in the last three months, fault lines were developing far before. Incredibly low consumer costs created wage plateaus over the past 20 years. For many in industrial labor, automation has led to more efficiency but provided fewer jobs. Meanwhile, in most OECD nations, the workforce was aging more rapidly than both social safety nets and worker replacement could bear. So now a massive blow has hit our economy and our workforce. How will it recover? What will the jobs of the future look like? Will COVID stimulus payments lead to reconsideration of universal basic income? Will the relationships between labor, capital, and government change? Many fundamental questions have to be answered over the coming weeks, months, and years by people across our economy, our government, and our globe. We hope our esteemed panel can start to answer some of them for you today. Again, if you have any questions, please click the Q&A button at the bottom of your Zoom screen at any time during our discussion. Moderating that discussion will be a former member of Congress uniquely qualified. From 2007 to 2013, Jason Altmaier was a Democratic House member serving the people of the 4th Congressional District of Pennsylvania. He served at the nexus of several issues we'll discuss today, serving on the Transportation and Infrastructure Committee, the Small Business Committee, and the Committee on Education and Labor. He joins us from the great state of Florida, and we'll get us started by introducing the rest of the panel. Congressman? Thank you for having me, and thank you all of uh, the people who have joined. And this is a very important topic, and we have two incredibly uh, successful and relevant guests to talk about this, this subject. And I wanted to introduce them first, and then we'll get started with the conversation. First, we have Bridget Schulte, who is an author and a speaker on these topics. She's done TED Talks and written books and articles, but she's also the director of the Better Life Lab, which we'll hear about shortly. And we also have Scott Frisch, who's the executive vice president and chief operating officer for AARP, of course, enormously influential organization in the country. So I just wanted to start with the two of you. We'll start with Scott. Uh, can you talk about the interest of your organizations in this issue and uh, why, why you were interested in coming on to talk about this today? Yes, of course, Jason. Thanks for uh, having me on here as well. So I think as most people probably know AARP, but we are a social mission organization uh, that really is dedicated to empowering people to choose how they live as they age. And we represent the 50 plus audience in the, in the US. Uh, we have about 38, just close to 38 million members. Um, and this pandemic has taken a devastating toll on so many of our members from lives lost. Uh, and then the, obviously the very destructive um, effects on health and financial security, as we just talked about with the, with the number of um, jobless claims. And, you know, while AARP itself, uh, thankfully, we've been able to turn on a dime 
and move ourselves to a remote, fully remote basis, uh, probably I think 11 or 12 weeks uh, so far. Um, and while we've been able to do that, we've been able to remain productive, but it does as what this conversation will be about for the next hour or so, it does make you think or rethink what is the future of work? How is it impacted uh, by telework, by remote working, and by whatever this new normal ends up being. So I'm looking forward to the conversation and uh, very excited to be here. Thank you, Bridget. So thank you so much for having me as well. So I'm Bridget Schulte. I'm a longtime journalist by training and now I direct the Better Life Lab at New America. So New America is a think and action tank, a nonpartisan um, entity here in, based here in Washington, DC. Uh, we have a number of different programs. We're dedicated to renewing America uh, in line with its highest ideals. Uh, my, my program, the Better Life Lab, we look at work, family justice, work and care, the intersection of those very things that we were talking about, how work combines with our life, combines with uh, family supportive social policies. Uh, we're primarily focused on gender equality, equity and gender equality, uh, and really looking at how we can combine work and care in, uh, in fair, equitable, and meaningful ways across the arc of our lives. Uh, so it's no surprise that this coronavirus pandemic has really disrupted absolutely everything that we look at, everything that we are, are researching. So we've really thrown ourselves into this. And when it comes to the future of work and where we're going from here, um, like so many pandemics, like so many crises, what this pandemic has shown is really the cracks in the system. Um, there are future of work trends, obviously, that we've all been looking at automation, technology, globalization, but these have been long time in coming. And uh, there are I, some of the things that we're looking at is the divides that this has shown. You know, I, we're all very lucky to be here working remotely, and there are millions who cannot, who are deemed essential. It's really calling into question. Uh, those relationships, labor management, uh, government, capital, what, what, how we really want to organize ourselves. Many of these essential workers have been exempted from paid sick days. Uh, it's really calling into question our public policies and the role of government. Those are some of the things that we're looking at and, and in large question sort of what we value. Um, here, we, uh, here we show the real value of care. We've got so many millions of people who have no access to childcare. We've got aging people who don't have access to the uh, you know, the, the care that they need. Um, so the crisis is really showing uh, a lot of the, the, the systems that are not working now that we really need to focus on if we're going to have an equitable and hopeful future of, of work in the future. Well, let's, let's stick with that theme. Um, we'll start with Scott. Is this something that would have happened anyway? Uh, you know, the evolution of the workforce to a work from home environment, utilization of technology like uh, Zoom and Skype and Microsoft Teams. Uh, would we have gotten to this point in time eventually anyway? Uh, and is this something you continue to hear about the new normal that we're going to be living in? Is this something that uh, is going to be continuing in the future and how is it going to change the workforce in the future? Well, I'd like to preface what I'm about to say by the fact that it is very difficult to predict the future. Uh, and everyone who has tried, uh, sometimes you fail, sometimes you get it, you know, 20% right, and sometimes you get it 75% right, but very rarely do you ever get it 100%. But having, so, so with that as context, I think clearly the, with the advent of technology over the last, especially the last 12 or 15 years, you are seeing, um, more organizations 
um, allowing their employees to work from anywhere. Right? It's not just work from home. Um, and then you add that on top of, especially in, in some of the major cities where uh, traffic congestion is a problem, um, it lends itself to allowing people to work from home or work from wherever on a more regular basis. So yes, I do think that you, would, you have seen that trend start very slowly over the last 10 or 15 years, pick up speed recently. What this pandemic has done is said a couple of things. Um, one is that it's okay to, if you have the ability, and that's the big question, if you have the ability either because your job allows it or because you have access to broadband, which we know a lot of rural locations don't, especially uh, you know, some of our constituents in our, in our membership don't have access in, um, to broadband, but assuming you do for the moment, um, I think this pandemic has made organizations think about what does um, the future look like in terms of commercial real estate, in terms of how much people do we need centralized in an office versus not. And listen, there are pros and cons to both, and this is not an either or. You have to be able to find that right balance um, but what this pandemic has done is forcing organizations and leaders um, and staff for, uh, as well to think about how they want to work, what is the right optimal solution as we move our, ourselves, uh, hopefully sooner than later, out of this pandemic into whatever the new normal is. Um, and then there's obviously, you know, with the biggest caveat of all, there's always the, always the possibility that when we get out of this, people may want to flock back to how, how it was, and it's not going to be as much of the Zoom calls. So there's a lot to unpack there, but um, it's definitely forcing people to think a little bit differently and try to figure out what the new normal is. Bridget? So, yeah, Scott, you raised such really, such important points. Uh, some of the work that we've done is looking at, you know, if you look at the history of remote and flexible work, that a lot of it arose in the 1990s. Um, you know, we, the, certainly the technology became available, but it was initially seen in many work environments as sort of an accommodation for working mothers. You had the influx of women into the workforce in the 70s, uh, you know, and, and the 80s. And so initially remote and flexible work was very stigmatized and it was sort of seen as a fast track to the mommy track, if you will. Uh, so it was not something that was embraced whole culture. Um, many, uh, you know, if you look at BLS data and who does work remotely and who works flexibly, uh, you know, the, the, the trends have been increasing upward uh, over the last few years. There is certainly with the influx of, you know, the high tech culture, the, that sort of work from anywhere, work from a beach if you can. Um, you know, so that has been sort of in, in certain rarefied instances, but I would say in, you know, what, what the research shows is that in a large part in, in most of corporate cultures, many workplaces, there has been this kind of FaceTime bias. Uh, and the research will bear that out, that we think that the best workers are actually physically present. Managers tend to think that they are able to control or understand or supervise better if someone is actually there. And there is good research that shows that there is a collaborative, you know, collaboration and innovation that can happen when you bump into each other. You know, the, the famous studies of, you know, uh, how people design Pixar or Apple, um, you know, so that you want to have gathering places where different people from different parts of the company would come together and innovation can spring that way. So there are good things about coming together. However, we've been so stuck in that notion that we have to be in the office, that we can only supervise people if we can see them, which is sort of silly. You know, how, are you, how do you really know somebody at their computer is actually working and not playing solitaire or shopping? 
um, you know, there has been this bias that if you're working at home, that is what you're doing. And as somebody who's worked remotely for quite some time, that is not what most work, remote workers are doing. And in fact, the research shows that they're more productive because you can actually do more concentrated work. The research also shows that in most office environments, the average uh, knowledge worker is interrupted every three minutes. And it takes about 20 minutes to get back to where you were. So in some of the research that we've done with our partners at Ideas42, a nonprofit behavioral science uh, nonprofit and the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, we're studying work-life conflict and health. And, and you know, are there nudges or interventions that we can design to try to ameliorate that? One of the things that comes up over and over again with, with knowledge workers is, you know, I get to the end of the day, it's five or six o'clock and I haven't even started. I've been so busy all day and haven't even started the one thing I needed to do. And so then work spills over into the evenings. People take it home or they stay late. So I think that what this pandemic is showing is that there are different ways to work and be very productive. But the last thing that I would say that is so important is that this is not normal. Most people who are working remotely, like when I've worked remotely in the past, my children are at school or they're in childcare. Here, people are trying to work and homeschool and take care of the childcare and going to the grocery store is fraught. You have to find your hand sanitizer and a mask. So everything is so much more difficult and fraught that this is actually not a good way to, to measure whether this is, you know, oh, we can do this, you know, if people are being productive. People are trying to just get through the day and survive in a very difficult time right now. But it does show that we can work in a different way. And moving into the future, I think what companies are going to be wanting to look at is some kind of hybrid where you can come together for that innovation and collaboration, but that you can have that time and space to actually have concentrated work to execute then. Yeah, can I, Jason, can I just add on to that for a moment? Um, so that last point, a lot of good points in there, Bridget, but the last one in particular is what is a, a hybrid uh, solution look like? And one of the things that, uh, you know, we, we've been thinking about, and this is as ARP as an organization, not necessarily broader, uh, in some of the conversations I've had with other CEOs um, and, and senior leaders in other organizations across multiple industries is, to Bridget's po uh, point, today everybody is working remotely and juggling all those things that Bridget said. Uh, so we're all on the Zoom calls, the team calls, or the Teams calls, or the Skype calls. Um, and if you go back to pre-pandemic, uh, you we uh, would have some people that are telecommuting, and you know they have to be home for the day, or some people that do telework uh, full time. But the productivity, at least today, with everyone working remote, we're all on the same platform. We're all doing it at the same time, the same place. When you go to the hybrid and you have some people in the, and let's forget whatever the requirements are for a moment of get phasing back into the workforce. Let's just say we're all back and just make that the assumption. Um, how does that, what happens to productivity when you have a potentially a large chunk working remotely and a large chunk quote in the office? We're not all on the zoom call. We have to, you know, start that zoom call in the conference room or whatever the video platform is. We have to, you know, do people lose out on that, those five or 10 minutes that causes all those delays that makes you do your work at seven o'clock at night. Um, so what is that? How do you manage that? How do you, how do you maintain the same level of productivity in that hybrid workforce uh, work location as we have today? Because I mean, from our perspective, at least my perspective where I sit at ARP, our productivity levels are at the same or in some ways higher than they were before. So 
how do you take the best of both worlds, blend it together, and not and and then lose all the things that made it uh, not so good? So that's really the dilemma that a lot of us are trying to think through. Thank you. I want to remind the audience that we uh, would love to have questions. This is an interactive forum, so use the chat button on your Zoom if you have questions. Just put them there, and we will forward those on to the panelists, and and we'll discuss that. And let, let's stick on that, that topic, Scott. You, uh, how do you measure productivity when you say the productivity at your organization, AARP, is equal or maybe even better than before? How, how do you measure that? Well, I mean, so we're, we're a unique organization and we're in the sense that we are a knowledge shop. Uh, we're not producing cars on the, on the manufacturing line. So uh, it's a little bit harder. But, you know, the way we look at uh, are we achieving or on track to achieve our goals for the year from whatever quite quote dashboard you use to measure your your health of your organization or the performance of your organization that to me is my first measurement of productivity are, are we still on track are we still doing the things we said we were going to do in order to produce the results that we want that we said we would um, and from that lens again i think you know, this full remote working status Thankfully, the technology internally has worked really well uh, since I, that does report up to me. Um, but uh, from that lens, I think we're in really good shape. And, and Bridget, on, on that, what, what does the literature say on uh, productivity in, in a work from home or, or a remote work environment? Is this uh, working out as people would have expected? Is productivity maintaining in this environment? So I think that when, you know, again, when we look at this particular environment, first of all, it's a little too early to tell, you know, we're just beginning to, you know, the data is still coming in. We're still trying to even figure it out as we're living through it. So I do think it's early to tell, uh, but there is, you know, obviously there's anecdotal data and certainly in our own team, we are more productive than we've ever been, you know, because we've had to respond to this and we do, you know, we do look at output and our output is <laughs> pretty amazing. And I think that other people are, are also seeing that. So this is what I think is so important. You, you know, you talk about metrics uh, and, and these are, this, these are, this is an important time to be thinking about well, what is it that we measure? What is it that we value? Because, you know, the, the research will show, you know, we think that the ideal worker works all the time, is in the office, comes in early, stays late, and that's who we reward, we promote, we, you know, give raises to. That's really disadvantaged women and caregivers over the years because they have, they still, it sort of freezes them into continuing with the caregiving responsibilities, making it very difficult to compete on what is really a, a sort of a, not a fair playing field, but it also freezes men into the role of then trying to be the ideal worker and the, and the breadwinner. So, so that's really, so work culture has been a, a key part of what's kind of stalled, if you will, true movement toward, toward equality or, or gender equality, either at work or at home. And so part of it is in the past, the metric has been, if you are in the office or you work long hours, we're sort of using factory metrics, if you will, to measure knowledge work. And there's lots of research that shows even the general, you know, uh, GSA has said, we don't really know how to measure knowledge work yet. And one of the things that this pandemic is showing is we've really got to think of new ways and new systems to measure what is performance and what is productivity. And that's going to be individual to each firm and each, you know, each sector and each team. And you know what, it's harder to do and it's more work. 
But I would argue that this pandemic is showing that this is exactly the work that our managers and our business leaders need to be doing to really think what is the value proposition? Why, why do we exist? How do we create value? And what's interesting is when you look at sort of firms and, and sectors that have gone through what we call work redesign, really trying to think about you know, planning for the future of work and planning for how do we make these transitions from kind of old ways to new ways. This is one of the first things that they do. You know, when you look at companies that have moved to say four day work weeks or, or done, you know, really innovative designs, they've really focused in on what are the metrics that really matter. And then they've redesigned work that way. And they've cut out a lot of the stuff that tends to be start of, you know, that we just do because we've always done, you know, you might call it status quo bias, you know, really rethink, do we need this meeting every Monday morning at nine? Do we really need all of these, uh, you know, to do these different tasks that don't eventually end up creating more value? So I do think that the pandemic creates an opportunity uh, to really rethink what value is and how we organize work in a way that, that, uh, uh, that, that kind of marries time and effort with what real value is. Bridget, what you're describing is really the, uh, what transformational leaders uh, in organizations that are willing to be transformed, um, that that is just one aspect of transformation. And it's a great point is how do you rethink what you do? And just because you've always done it one way doesn't mean you need to do it that way going forward. And that applies to, you know, we could, that applies to a hundred different topics, not just the future of work. And, um, Former Congressman Dan Micah asks, uh, I think it, it's relevant to this, this specific point, what is the future of the workforce going to look like? Uh, a, a year from now, we may not know, but let's say three to five years or, or longer, uh, what, what can we expect the average uh, workplace to look like? You want me, want me to take that one first, Jason? Uh, let's start with you, yes. So again, very hard to predict the future. I think one year would be uh, almost impossible, but let's assume for the moment that this pandemic is behind us, um, God willing, and that there's a, a vaccine or what have you, and we're back to a, a semblance of what it was prior to this um, from a health perspective. I, I think there is going to be um, two really ways, two, we have to almost separate the world into two buckets. One is the knowledge worker in the corporate setting, and I use corporate in quotes because that can cover a variety of organizational structures, to uh, the, everything outside of that. So from your hospitality to your restaurants to your baristas at the local coffee. Did you want to add uh, to that, Bridget? Um, yeah, um, sure. I, I, I don't know if Scott's still talking. I can't, uh, I can't hear him. Um, oh, do we lose him? Yeah, I no, think am I back? There, now you're back. So Scott, oh, I wanted okay. to, I, right. I'm happy to add in, but I'd like you to give you the opportunity yeah, no, to finish I'm, your I'm, point. Yeah, I'm sorry. It looks like I had another call coming and it blocked it out. Um, so, so anyways, I was saying, if you have the, the knowledge worker in the corporate world quotes and everybody else, the future from a future of work, from a technology standpoint, lends itself to those that are in the corporate environment. And again, I use that in quotes. The baristas in the coffee shops or the, the construction worker or the, the plumber, the electrician, that's very difficult to think about when those, are, those aren't work from home type of roles. So if you focus on the knowledge worker for a moment, um, I think the future, I personally think that we are social animals. We need to be around people. Uh, we need to have interactions. Um, 
whether it's virtual or whether it's in the physical world. Um, I think over time, you're going to see people, I believe, migrate back to the commercial, I'm sorry, the, the in-person world and the commercial space. Um, but you're going to have an increased element of people who say, hey, I can do my job 100% from home. And companies pre-pandemic may have not been as open to that as they are post-pandemic. So there will be a more willingness for organizations to accept people that say, hey, my investment team can do with technology, everything that they can do in the office, they can do at home. Are you willing to accept that? I, I bet the answer is yes. Um, now, again, what does that mean for commercial real estate in the future? That's another question. But I do believe there'll be an additional willingness to have this hybrid model and that systems, HR systems, organizational systems, management systems will evolve to reflect, it may not be 50-50, but it will, will evolve to allow for an increased um, element of remote working. I don't think we have those answers yet, but I think five years from now we will. Let's, um, we, we've got several questions lined up. I'll, I'll, I think this next one would be good for Bridget to, to uh, talk. We have uh, former Congressman Peter Smith, and I think we can uh, cue over to him and allow him to ask the question. Are you ready, Peter? Sure. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, this is the uh, verbal equivalent of uh, going to a meeting in your bathrobe, I think. Um, i got to get my throat cleared. Um, my question is, uh, I think one of the things that this is a little afield, but it comes back to the future of work that we've seen is the incredible disruption of supply chains that are global and national um, that we have come to rely on um, in a way that I don't think many of us really were focusing on. And so with that in mind, uh, I'm thinking about the people who don't get to choose where they work. Um, and, I, and I see a confluence of, of forces. I think of public banks and C corporations that somehow, unless we change the way we look at earnings for people who earn a lot, uh, somehow, we're not going to be able to address the insecurities that people have, and they're being exposed every day in this in this virus uh, epidemic. But they were there to begin with insecurities with health, housing, income. How do we take a step back and think about making life more secure for people who have fewer choices? Um, because I just don't think we've. I think we've we've been staring at them, uh, saying thank you every day and all that, but taking them for granted and not respecting the vulnerabilities that they have. Where do they land in this future? Yeah, well, listen, I, I'm happy to take that one, uh, Jason, if you wanted to toss that to me. Yeah, Bridget, um, go ahead. Yeah, I, I think that that is, you know, I know we've been talking about remote work and, you know, frankly, talking about a very privileged part of our uh, economy. And I, I think what this pandemic has shown it's something that, that many of us have been looking at all along, but I think has been really invisible. And that is we have people who are dying, who are making $11 an hour, who have no health care, who have no paid sick days, you know, who don't have uh, any retirement savings, who have nothing in the bank, who have unpredictable hours or underemployment. They can't get as many full-time hours as they want. 
you know, they're dying because they didn't, they're considered essential workers and they don't have protective equipment. And I think this is a really important inflection point for our nation. If we want to talk about what, you know, who we are and what we value as a nation, how can this be? How can we have created the systems? How can we have made the decisions as policymakers and leaders that led us here? Because this is not an individual choosing to then go and make $11 an hour. Many of these workers have no other choice for structural and systemic reasons. And I think that this is a really important point that, that we all need to be looking at right now. Uh, you know, the future of work is already here. You know, I wrote a piece not long ago that looked at retail, restaurant workers. You know, their boss has been an algorithm for the last few years, you know, as we thought about technology and let's use big data and then we'll, uh, you know, try to really squeeze labor costs. And then what that ended up doing is treating people like widgets. And then you would get 12 hours one week and two hours the next and, you know, never enough hours to qualify for health care because that was cut off at 30. So this is a real, a real opportunity to look at all of our systems, to really rethink who are we as a people? What do we value? What are the basic, uh, basic needs that people have? Uh, you know, uh, what can we expect of people? You know, we have this, uh, I would say, a myth of self-sufficiency. Uh, there's been so, many, so much talk about you know, keeping government small. Well, what is the role of government? And the pandemic is making really clear that those are questions that we need to be thinking about very seriously. We've got really grotesque inequality and those are results of decisions that leaders have made. And we need to be thinking, are, those different, are there different decisions now that we all need to be making at, very, at the very highest levels? We have uh, from, I think the next question is something that's critically important. And, and for both panelists, I think this will be uh, worth, what, worth answering. Former Congresswoman Clayton from North Carolina, Eva Clayton, uh, has a question about social interaction and, and uh, the, the, maybe one of the downsides to the work from home environment. Congresswoman Clayton, do you want to ask your question? Your uh, Congresswoman Clayton, you're you're muted if you're speaking. Now, there you go. Can you hear me now? <laughs> yeah, we can hear you. Good morning, panel. Well, I wanted to know what the relationship and the value of human interaction with our work and the productivity is more mechanical and technical than it is interrelationship with work. What's the value? What what value do you place on going forward of the human interaction with work. And the second question I didn't put down, but um, as we go back, we really need to find out how we take care of daycare uh, for these mothers who need to go back to work. Mm -hmm. well, maybe well, those are both great questions. I, I would add, yeah, well, I know I, I would add for Scott, I was going to throw it over to you anyway. I know at AARP, social isolation is an issue uh, that comes up from time to time. Um, you know, when you are in a work from home environment, uh, that, that certainly can um, unfortunately uh, aggravate that situation. You know, what, what, what is the impact with regard to, you know, maybe a downside to, to this type of technology with, with that loss of, of uh, person to person social interaction? Yeah, well, it's a great question. Scott. And it's, you know, social isolation, even can you guys all hear me? Can you hear yes. me? Yes. 
Okay, so, so, so social isolation, even pre-pandemic, yeah, uh, has been a big issue. It's one of our key tenets of, our, uh, of the AARP Foundation and what we're trying to solve for. Um, but, you know, I think I mentioned earlier, human beings were social cr uh, creatures. You know, connections to others enable us to survive and, and thrive. We're, I don't believe we're built to do our interactions like we're doing right now over this uh, video Zoom call. Um, you know, and this especially hits the older worker, the older adult, much harder than, than others. Um, you know, I myself, I, I, need, I need to have that interaction. And I have a family that's home and two, two um, daughters that are um, home from uh, college or getting ready to go in college. But for the 50 plus, um, work is a significant meaning, uh, a driver of meaning and a purpose, purpose and socialization. So without that, we have to worry about what are the social and mental health issues that arise uh, from this. And that's when I said to the question earlier, three to five years from now, if this becomes a larger piece for at least a certain section of the workforce, um, we have to be able to have the systems to deal with this. And the older work, the older adult in this workforce, in, I think 1990 was represented, 55 plus represented 12% uh, of the workforce in 1990. The end of 2019 is 23%. So having more older people in the workforce they get their, they get that social interaction from that. What happens when that starts to dissipate either through no fault of their own, i.e. layoffs or furloughs, or what have you, or a change in technology? It's a big question. It's a very important item to think through. We, we have a question coming in from former Congresswoman Claudine Schneider. So let, let's line her up and while we're to ask that question. And then while we're doing that, Bridget, maybe you could handle the second part of the previous question about daycare and, and, and the relevance of that for working moms. Sure, absolutely. Um, you know, for anyone who's bothered to look, it's been really clear that we really do not have an adequate childcare or uh, early care and learning system in the United States. We've agreed that it's a public good to educate children from the ages of five to 18. And so we have uh, you know, agreed to, to uh, support a hopefully a high quality public education system. But we have left zero to five for parents to pay for. And parents pay privately for the bulk of our early care and learning. It's a patchwork system. It's very difficult to find. It's hard to have high quality. It's very expensive simply because it takes a lot of people to do. You have one early care educator who can take care of, you know, maybe five, eight children, depending upon age. Whereas once you hit five, you know, the age of five, you've got one kindergarten teacher who can take care of 30 children. So in terms of thinking about it, you know, the, the thinking about it as a market, it simply as a market doesn't work. We need to be thinking about early care and education the same way that we think about public education, that it is a public good. And when we're talking about opening up and going back to work, one of the, one of the things that simply boggles my mind is that we have not at all addressed the fact that about half the childcare centers are closed. Many of them may never open again. They, have, they, they operate on razor thin margins. 
caregivers, child care educators and child care teachers, they earn on average about $11 an hour, about what a parking lot attendant does. So they're hovering on poverty wages. More than half of them earn so little that they qualify for public benefits like Medicaid or food stamps. So we're relying, this is the work that enables all other work to get done. And so when I was talking earlier about how the pandemic is really raising questions about what we value, here's a perfect example of how we really need to rethink the value of care and how we need to invest in it because the research is clear, the return on investment is incredibly high for, you know, for society, for the economy, for the future. And so this is a, a, this is a really important opportunity to really look at our early care and learning system and think about how we can make it really work. If I, Great. Jason, Thank can I add to that for a moment? Oh, Scott, sure, go ahead, yeah. yes. So if I, if I could just, it's a, there's a great point, Bridget, but I'd also like to shift to, it's not just the early uh, child care, it's also, you know, many of us um, are caregivers, and, it, and, that, and, the, and the recipient of that care can range from the newborn to that very elderly parent or grandparent. Um, and I think, Bridget, you said earlier, in this pandemic, you're trying to homeschool your kids, you're trying to get to the grocery store with a mask on, you're trying to do your J job, you're trying to juggle all these things, but caregivers um, is, a, is a big issue, and it cuts across the entire age spectrum, because you may have those millennials or Gen Xs that are doing both double duty, um, and one of the things that we're really proud of at AARP a couple of years ago, we recognized that our staff, this is a high level, and this is pre-pandemic for the moment, um, high level of, of degree of anxiety about caregiving. So we instituted a 80 hour paid caregiving leave program for staff on top of vacation and top of sick leave, et cetera, that you know, they can provide care for uh, in, within certain parameters. That has been, I think it's utilized by like, uh, something like 62% of our staff. I get people stopping me in the hallways when we were in the hallways, thanking us, thanking me for putting this stuff in place because it's taken that level of anxiety away, even if it is just 80 hours. But, and that's what I talked about and Bridget said as well, as you think about what the future holds, what are the systems in place that need to be able to deal with issues that are coming to light as part of this pandemic that always existed but now are just more prevalent. So uh, just another practical example of what we've done internally um, that has helped tremendously in what we advocate for across the various channels. So it's a great point, Bridget. Thanks for bringing that part. And if I could, yeah. And if I could just add to that, you know, what you've created is really a paid family leave system, you know, and that is so clear. I think we've under this illusion or, you know, in the United States, there's this view that families are private matter. And so that we really, you know, families need to take care of all of that. And the pandemic is really showing that's a fallacy. You know, if we want our economy to work, if we want the society to work, we have to recognize that the workforce has changed and that the majority of children are being raised in families where all parents work. And as Scott said, there are growing numbers of sandwich generation caregivers who are caring for children and elderly parents. 
you know, and having, having those systems where you recognize that the workforce has caregiving responsibilities, to me, that's the most important thing to think about in the future of work, that the future of work is the future of care. You know, thinking about work, workers as carers, but also the caregiving, the care workforce, which is only projected to grow. And the one thing that I will say, I've been hosting these weekly podcasts where we really look at how the pandemic is, is shifting work and life. And we had a show last week on home health workers. And we featured Washington State because what they've done is so interesting and hopeful and really potentially a model for everyone else where they've really done a really interesting job of looking at labor and capital and management. And they've come together and created a system where home health work is actually good work. They've figured out how to have higher pay. Uh, they have retirement, they have healthcare, they have paid training. Uh, and they have a more stable than workforce, which then creates better care and lower costs for everyone. So I think these are some innovative solutions. There are bright spots out there that we can learn from as we move forward. And I think another issue that's going to be relevant moving forward is the aspect of uh, what qualifications is the future workforce going to need? Uh, what, what's missing? Uh, what, what, what's our education system going to have to do to adapt to the potential of long-term work from home arrangements? And on that issue, former Congresswoman Claudine Schneider from Rhode Island is going to, uh, I think, ask a question relevant to that. So uh, Claudine, go ahead and ask. Well, yes, my, can you hear me all right? Yes. Can you can hear, hear me? You. Okay. Um, yes. yes. <laughs> My question was about educational readiness, but um, my thoughts have shifted a bit since these last additional comments, and that is the policy changes that we are all suggesting and we know will make for a better America really require new policy makers. I mean, we cannot afford to have senators who have been in office for 30 years and expect them to make the transition to thinking about, you know, the, the kind of policies that we've been discussing. So um, the other concern I have is that, Bridget, you have your area of focus, your deep expertise, and Scott, you have yours. And I have spent my life focused on being a change agent that will look at these singular viewpoints, mesh them together, and, you know, create a vision for the future that is comprehensive and broad. And I think that that's what we need to do. If there is a Northern European model of healthcare or of education, it's essential that we put that vision together because models help change people's thinking. There is this tendency to do business as usual, but if we see something that works, a pilot project that has emerged in a state, like I'm now in Colorado, and we were offering you know, free childcare, um, kindergarten, uh, for everybody, but now because of the economic situation, we're not able to do that. We have a $3 billion deficit that we need to address. So we need to create a new vision and take into consideration what can we afford? And as Bridget was saying, what is our highest value? Every poll you look at, people say, my health is most important. 
and my family. And so, you know, if the experts were to come together and meld your knowledge and experience and put together a vision and models of success, I think we could much more rapidly change our policies, as long, of course, as we change the US Senate. Um, <laughs> that is really stuck in their ways. Um, Bridget, did you want to talk maybe a little bit about that, but also addressing the other question about the educational uh, changes that are going to need to take place to adjust to a more virtual work environment? Sure. Well, you know, so first of all, you know, I work for a nonpartisan think tank. I've got a training, tra my training is a journalist. So, you know, I, uh, I, I try not to wade into the political waters. Uh, you know, in terms of uh, makeup of the Senate. But I think what one thing is really clear is that when you have people who have life experience that is very similar to the life experience of the general population, you do get different policies. You look at what's happened in New Zealand or in, in countries where there are, are women who have had caregiving responsibilities or, or men, you know, in Iceland where there are men who've had uh, caregiving responsibilities, who's take, who've taken paid parental leave. Uh, you have very, you have different policies because there is more of a connection and understanding of what people are actually going through. So there is, there is, a, you know, a, it's important to look at that, at that question. Um, you know, in terms of thinking about larger systems change, I think that you're absolutely right. Looking at bright spots and pilots gives people a sense of, of what's possible. And I think breaking out of kind of ideological mindsets, particularly now, is so important. And there are really, really great models for, for ways forward that, that fit, you know, that could be adapted to the American way. Um, you know, for instance, in, in Denmark, um, they have what's called flex security. You know, in the United States, it's a real value to give businesses great, great sense of control and self-regulation and, and, and flexibility to be dynamic. You know, we have this dynamic capitalism. So how can you have that sense of dynamism and yet not chew up and spit out the workers, uh, you know, which is sort of what ends up happening here a lot. And so they have a, a, the flex security gives businesses the flexibility that they that they need and want for innovation. But then it protects workers because there is actually a solid safety net. Uh, so that's those are some models to be looking at. And then in terms of education moving forward. Um, you know, there, it, when we think about the future of work, everybody's all freaked out about the robots. The robots are coming. They're going to come and take our jobs. And I think that the future, again, you know, as Scott was saying, we can't predict what that's going to look like, but there's no doubt that technology and automation, it's going to continue. But the thing is, it's going to probably remake jobs. Uh, you, you know, there's all sorts of predictions. You know, you even look at like previous industrial revolutions, you know, people were no longer you know, doing weaving and looming in their own homes. But then you, when the machines started, you needed people who would interact with those machines. So that you need to be thinking about human robot interaction, if you will, or automation interaction. So I think we don't know quite what, you know, which jobs will go away forever and how some will be transformed. But I think what's really clear is that education is still going to be incredibly important and making sure that everybody has the opportunity for choice in the future continues to be important. And, and that education starts really from the moment a child is born. I think we have time for, certainly, yeah, go ahead, Scott. And then the, the last gonna, question is gonna be directed at you also. Okay, so I was just gonna add a, just a quick comment to add on to what Bridget said about education. Um, you know, it, it's, we all, you know, we have grade school, high school, 
four years of college. Some people go on and get their master's or their PhD, but, and then for most people, it stops primarily after four years of college. So this concept of lifelong learning and, and I don't know what that model is, but I do think one of the outcomes of this pandemic or positive outcomes of this pandemic, and I'm, I'm trying to find some is that um, you're listening to a lot of the universities in this country think about how to bring their students back and how do they have an online um, portion tied with an in-person classroom function. And you've had these you know, massive online courses that have come about over the last few years that have had some adoption in certain areas and others that haven't. But does, this, does what we're going through today give us the opportunity to enhance this concept of lifelong learning in that you may get your degree or whatever the education is to a certain point, but then you're having the ability to have a very uh, inexpensive way to increase your education to adapt to whatever those requirements are for the workforce in the future. Um, and it doesn't mean that everyone's going to be a coder coding some app uh, for Google. It could be any sort of education. So I think, I'm not sure how it plays out, but I do think this has set the groundwork or at least planted the seeds for something that could truly transform the educational uh, market in this country and quite frankly, across the world. And then uh, Congresswoman Lynn Shank, former Congresswoman Lynn Shank, uh, wanted to ask a question. This will be our last question. So uh, Lynn, if you are queued up, I uh, see you're on mute right now. Take yourself off mute and uh, you'll have the last question. Uh, well, her question was, there you go. Okay, go ahead, Lynn, ask, ask your question. Lynn Shank, do you wanna ask your uh, question? Okay, well, her, her question was about uh, ageism in uh, a virtual remote workforce. Uh, she's concerned that uh, folks who have a lot of work experience, uh, career experience, uh, once they get in, as she said uh, in her question, once they get into her, their 70s or so, uh, that people stop valuing their opinion, uh, in, in her opinion. And uh, what, what is the dynamic uh, as it relates to that with regard to a work from home environment and what's the future of the workforce going to be for people who are uh, among the older folks who want to stay in the workforce? Yeah, it's a great, it's a great Scott, question. I think you're a great person. Thank you. Go ahead, Scott. Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Uh, and I, let me try to tackle it in a couple of ways. Um, age discrimination in the workforce is, is, exists and it's apparent, even though it's illegal. Um, people don't stand up on top of the desk and shout it out. It happens. It happens uh, subtly sometimes by, you know, we're looking for, you know, there are statements that says you're overqualified or it's not the right fit. Uh, it's very hard to prove, but it does. And it is apparent. It's something ARP has been fighting for or fighting against, I should say, um, for years and years is to reduce age discrimination uh, in the workforce. Um, so I, I will say, um, you know, there, and there are certain myths about the older worker 
um, that they can't handle technology or they cost more, their health costs are more, or their, um, their salaries are too high. And there's been studies over and over again that have basically refuted all those myths. I do think um, two factors that I remain hopeful why this will eventually hope end. Um, one is prior to the pandemic, the older, uh, I think it's a 50 plus uh, unemployment rate was in the high threes, extremely low um, for that segment. Um, now, if you fast forward, we're all reacting to this technology of what we're doing today, this Zoom call. We're more comfortable with technology. I think that digital gap has shrunk significantly, has been shrinking, um, and will continue to shrink. This has expedited that. Um, you have people that are 65 today that think about technology and interact with technology vastly different than those from 10 years ago or 20 years ago. And as you know, uh, my generation uh, gets, uh, you know, goes into the, the 60s and 70s, our relationship with technology and our our comfortable, uh, our adaptability technology will be vastly different than what it was from the previous generation. So I think over the long term, and I know this doesn't get to um, Lynn's question immediately, but over the long term, I do think this pandemic will have a silver lining where it will hopefully eliminate at least one significant myth about the older worker. Um, I also think the concept of experience um, is extremely important to be able to deal with um, catastrophes or crises. Um, and if you, and again, granted, we haven't been like one through this and if not ever, but we've been through others. And having that perspective allows a certain sense of clarity as you become more experienced in the workforce. I think these are the things that are being um, put a spotlight on in a good way that hopefully over time will help to mitigate uh, Lynn's issue. Um, and I'm very proud to work for an organization that is trying to change that conversation in this country and abroad about what it means to age and why, um, you know, ageism is still so prevalent in, uh, in across all types of society, all across, across all elements of society. But it's a, it's a long war. It's not going to be won overnight. Um, so I think the future is bright and this will hopefully help it. And then for the very last uh, word on, on the subject, I wanted to turn it over to Bridget. I know you had a concern uh, about uh, gig work and, and how that is going to be impacted in the future. So you can bring us home uh, with the last comment on that. Well, you know, it's, thank you so much. And it's, uh, you know, it is related to the question about age as well. You know, I, uh, before the pandemic, I called an Uber and my Uber driver was uh, in her early 70s. And, you know, she had to work because she'd had medical expenses that she weren't covered and, you know, she needed to pay for her heart transplant medication. So I think, you know, this is an important part to be thinking about, too, in the future of work is what kind of stability and security are we creating for people throughout their lives? So, you know, I've had DoorDash people and they've been delivering things as gig workers and they're clearly in their 60s or 70s. You know, we need to be thinking about what are the systems that are, are pushing people into this kind of work. And then so many young people, 
you know, we talk about the future of work being, you know, that the social contract is gone and that there will be more independent and gig and contract work. And so then we really need to be thinking and again, in system, larger systemic and structural ways, what are the systems that we need to be, to have in place so that these people are not lost so that we don't have a society of structural have and have nots. And what is the role of public policy and government uh, to create and and what's the responsibility of business as well, you know, not just to shareholders anymore, but how can we rethink that uh, that stakeholders and workers and health and well being of of our citizens and, and the people in America really matter. So this is what I'm what I what I would hope that leaders and business leaders and policymakers are going to be thinking about the future of work that we really need a wholesale review and restructuring of the way that, that, that we've organized uh, work and care uh, now in, in the pandemic and then in the future. Well, this has been such an enlightening discussion. It's an important topic. This is not where any of us uh, envisioned uh, being in, in the workforce in this time. And, and uh, I think it is a conversation that was a long time coming. So uh, Scott and Bridget, thank you very much for your time. Uh, I know you have uh, a million other things going on uh, in this environment and, and to have you on this panel to weigh in has been uh, very instructive and very important for us. So thanks to both of you. Thank you to the U.S. Association of Former Members of Congress for hosting uh, this very important panel and, and other continuing panels that they are hosting. And uh, thank you to all the participants for taking some time out of your day to join the discussion and, and to, uh, to listen. So thanks to everybody involved. And with that, we're going to conclude the call.